0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Projects podcast with me Matt Williams. Today I'm sharing with you a conversation with Steph West at Steph 78 on Twitter who is UK Biodiversity Training Manager at the Natural History Museum. In this episode I got a fascinating behind the scenes look at the work of the Natural History Museum that you may not have heard about. That includes training the next generation of specialist ecologists, and I've put a link to that project in the show notes, and helping to conserve the world's wildlife, as well as preserving specimens of dead animals and lost species. I also learned about Steph's early fascination with bats, hence her Twitter handle, and she tells us about the skills she developed in the financial sector and how those translate across to her career in conservation. Steph also shares her view on what it's like to work at the museum, as well as telling us about how and where the specimens are stored, and some of her favourites, including the mysterious-sounding spirit birds. You can read more about Steph at another link that I've included in the show notes. And finally, just to say, as usual, that the Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature, and that you can find us at wildvoicesproject.org, and follow us on Twitter, at wildvoicesproj and you can subscribe in itunes or stitcher and we're part of wild voices media a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals and you can find out more about that at wild-voices.org i think that's everything so let's dive in to this episode just by asking um, how do you build wildlife, nature, the outdoors into your day or your week Uh, particularly when you work and I assume live in or near London?
1: Okay, awesome. Yeah, great question. Um, So actually for me it's been a bit of a change because up until six months ago I was very lucky to live over near Winchester Mm. in Hampshire so I was... uh, out in a much more regional, well rural uh, part of the country uh, than I am now. So actually for me it's been a bit of a change recently working out how to bring more conservation, more wildlife into my day-to-day routine because it's very easy in London to go from home to the tube to work. (laughs) very often not see the outside world. Yeah. Um, so my main actual personal interest is bats. Uh, that's kind of what I grew up studying uh, from a very young age. Mm. Um, so that's going to be one of my big things for this year is making sure that I get involved and uh, get, get, get myself out on bat walks. Um, and I'm going to be helping out a lot more with the moth trapping that we do in the wildlife garden here as mm. well. So uh, very fortunate in that way. And uh, yeah, just making space in my week to get out and see things otherwise you miss an awful lot and there's so much exciting stuff in London wildlife wise as well for me it's quite an adventure actually finding out what's what is right in the heart of urban London
0: yeah have you got any good tips on uh places in London for people that they may not have heard of or may not have discovered
1: um actually kind of it's a little bit the other way around i'd love to hear as many tips as possible you're on the lookout for yeah i am i'm I'm out on the hunt this is this is my first spring in london so i'm I'm off exploring so i'm starting off with the you know obvious the london wildlife trust reserves london wildlife
0: uh, trust has some really nice reserves in the city doesn't it yeah
1: yeah yeah some really interesting places um so yeah that's that's kind of my target for the spring is to go out and explore lots of those maybe Mm -hmm. some of the less well-known ones as well, and, uh, and yeah. see what I can find.
0: It's <laughs> also, I mean, my brother used to live in Kennington, for example, and mm. there's also just, you know, little community gardens that are not yeah. that big, but pack so much into a small space that you just find here and there in London Absolutely. as you go around a corner, which yeah. is really great.
1: Yeah, that's that's really true. There are little corners of, of solitude, even right in the heart of, heart of the city, which are buzzing with wildlife. So, so mm. yeah, so really important. The opportunity to explore, see what I can find.
0: <laughs> and for the bat stuff, is it slightly too early in the year to be doing bat stuff at the moment, or can you be doing surveys of roosts at this time of year, or yeah. what, what, how do bats work at this time of year? <laughs>
1: um, so obviously this time of year, um, everything is coming out of hibernation and mm-hmm. doing lots of feeding, so um, they're increasing activity, uh, especially as the nights start to get a bit warmer, mm-hmm. uh, there's more and more out and about. Um, so yeah, it's, this time of year is a great time to start looking for bats actually, because they're active, mobile um, and out foraging an awful lot trying to replenish lost stocks so uh, plus also the nights aren't too uh, too late either, so no, uh, it's, it's quite civilized this time of year
0: yeah I've, yeah, I've been on back walks in the height of summer and you sort of have to wait until gone nine o'clock at night before you start seeing anything don't you?
1: yeah some can get quite late uh, i spent a good few years as a um, consultant so doing dusk and dawn surveys back to back um, and starting to go slightly insane by about september <laughs> from the uh, from the lack of sleep and
0: <laughs> yeah my friends who are field ecologists are usually getting yeah. a little bit frazzled by the uh, by the autumn
1: yes you do you, you start to lose your grip a little bit on what daylight really is and all sorts of things it's great fun it's brilliant don't get me wrong but um yeah it's uh it's certainly middle of the summer you're not seeing very much sleep
0: yeah you? <laughs> and you say bats was how you came to your interest in nature while mm. like the outdoors was that something that you got interested in at a young age or did it come a bit later or
1: um yeah it was um i think i was about 11 or 12 i think mm-hmm. and um went Went on a uh, school like weekend away kind of um, thing uh, to uh, Leeson House Field Study Centre down in Dorset, and we went on a bat walk, um, and it just so happened as well that outside the room I was staying in, there was also a, a bat emer- uh, roost uh, emerging oh, wow. uh, from like just above the window, and I just got hooked on them. Um, yeah, really, really interested, and just constantly found there's more and more to learn about them. Um, so then it became my dissertation when I went to university and yeah, they're, they're quite addictive mm. um, and they've uh, allowed <laughs> they me a very interesting career as well, so I can't complain.
0: Did did you, did you pursue that interest between the age of 11 and doing your dissertation? Were you, were you getting involved in surveying and stuff when you were a teenager?
1: Bits and pieces. Yeah. Um, did drop it for a little while, um, but then kind of re-found my way back to it. Mm. Um, always, it was kind of always there in the background, but yeah, found my way back to it, uh, as a lot of
0: people do with yeah. an interest in nature yeah, yeah.
1: definitely, and uh, yes, not being able to uh, lose that interest since
0: yeah mm. and um we 're sitting uh, downstairs in the natural history Museum at the moment, which we 'll come on to in a minute but what what did you do between that dissertation and working here at the natural history museum what what 's got you here today
1: okay uh so it's, my career 's been a fairly eclectic mix across um, the conservation sector for, in the UK. Um, I've been really lucky with a lot of the opportunities that I've had and just taken them as as they've come across. So my career hasn't really been planned. It sort of looks like the mad ramblings of a over-enthusiastic ecologist <laughs> through various sectors. Um, so... Uh, when i left university obviously did the the obvious volunteering thing that i think a lot of people fall into trying to build that experience yeah. um and actually ended up working on the stock market for 2 years while doing all that volunteering oh wow um so didn't fall straight into you know the ideal first conservation job yeah. uh, for a couple of years um but then i was very lucky uh to get an interview after 2 years of going for interviews and putting more applications in and getting turned down and stuff um finally got a job as assistant ecologist with what is now the Hampshire Biodiversity Information Mm Centre as assistant ecologist, so working a lot with data um, and records, uh, historical records as well as modern records. Um, And that was kind of my real grounding um, in the UK biodiversity sector. From there I then got a promotion within Hampshire County Council, which is where HBIC still sits, um, to senior ecologist looking at at, uh, planning applications. Uh, So working in the planning and biodiversity teams, uh, supporting uh, local government across Hampshire uh, with assessing applications for their biodiversity impacts, Uh, working on uh, county level policies, uh, minerals and waste sites as well, which actually sounds terrible, uh, but is really fascinating Mm. and a real opportunity to understand how mitigation um, can have a real part to play especially on larger scale developments and some of the larger minerals and waste sites and you can actually have a real impact in that kind of role. So it taught me a lot about how to work with people who Mm -hmm. may not automatically be interested in conservation or ecology um, but actually to get some really good solutions for wildlife um, through that kind of role. So I was there for, I think I was at Hampshire County Council for about seven years and then a friend of mine um, left Sparsho College, which is an agricultural college just outside Winchester, right, and um, suggested that um, I might like to apply for his job um, as a lecturer in conservation and wildlife management, which I duly did and ended up getting one of the then two posts there um, so Ended up as a uh, lecturer and eventually uh, senior practitioner and course leader on the national diploma and uh, degree courses mm-hmm. in conservation and wildlife management over there. Yeah. So working with young people and um, career change students, uh, looking at helping them, support them in their learning. Um, and then from there to consultancy. You can see where this is going in a bit of a random <laughs> wonder. Um, yeah from, from that into ecological consultancy again still in Hampshire um, but working again principally on bats but also on environmental impact assessment mm-hmm. um, for quite often quite large scale developments. Again, right which so brings
0: in the planning expertise that you picked up earlier. Exactly
1: yeah so it allowed me to kind of do the other side of planning and biodiversity yeah. if you like um, which was very interesting and then Suddenly, this job came up um, at the Natural History Museum, and I couldn't resist. <laughs> <laughs> the job at the Natural History Museum, working in UK biodiversity, um, yeah. and yeah, obviously, I've always found this place fascinating, as so many people do. And yeah, again, leapt at the opportunity and somehow got it.
0: <laughs> well, I want to I want to come onto that very much so in a second. I, mm. I find uh, the stock market thing really fascinating. Was that a uh... Was that a way to make ends meet so as you could do the volunteering? In a Basically, sense. yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Um, it's in no way at all as glamorous as it sounds. I actually came from a, a temp job um, that I went for just to try and get a bit of cash in, really, and mm. ended up um, working on the UK gilt uh, treasury market, which is the government bonds um, for the treasury, which are sold off in very large quantities to very large institutions um, and other
0: countries at times as well
1: uh, not no. no it was mostly to like, large scale corporations mm. and things okay. uh, that tend to trade in them but yeah. it was an odd job because my job was settlements clerk so it was kind of when trades had failed so you were kind of jumping into the stock market and trying to match things which hadn't automatically happened yeah. um, so rather than on the trading floor it was more the sort of background kind of thing it was an interesting insight into that world.
0: Although, although yeah. it was a completely different field, were there skill skills from that that mapped across to your, your conservation career?
1: Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, it's very fast-paced, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. It teaches you very quickly to be very accurate in what you're doing, mm-hmm. um, but, al- but also to have to work at speed um, and to deal with other people. Um, who are themselves working in very high-pressured environments, very artificial environments. Um, parts of it were lots of fun, actually, in the slight adrenaline rush, i yeah. it, I, admit, I always <laughs> quite enjoyed, even if I was always mildly confused as to how I ended up there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was interesting. It taught me a lot about working with people, about working under pressure, um, and working very accurately, uh, very quickly. So, uh, yeah, they're definite skills that I could track across. Yeah, Um, certainly, but yeah, don't want to go back and do that again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's really interesting because, you know, I think it speaks to the fact that, um, you know, having a having a job or a career that that um, that matches with or is your passion is something that you know I feel hugely grateful to be able to do that. Mm. Nonetheless, um, if if that's not an option, or if you go and pursue something in another sector. You can bring very useful things from from that completely different field into into a sector like conservation that other people find very employable and very useful and yeah definitely I think that's really 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 interesting
1: yeah some of the confidence that it gives you as well because mm. you have to be confident in that sort of situation it's it's amazing how many skills do you map across mm. uh, to what we do in conservation yeah. um yeah yeah it was it was very interesting but and also gave me the opportunity to build up a whole suite of skills, attend courses that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to afford yeah. um, get yeah. us to places to go and volunteer.
0: Yeah. Mm. Okay, so could you say a little bit more about, um, there's, a whole, there's a whole raft of questions that I want to ask, but about what your role is here now at the Natural History Museum, and then maybe we can talk a little bit more about the Angela Marmont Centre where we're sitting specifically sure. as well.
1: Okay, um, so I actually changed roles at the museum um, back in June last mm-hmm. year. Um, so originally I was employed uh, to come in and manage a project called Identification Trainers for the Future, um, which is a three and a half year long uh, heritage lottery fund funded project. Um, so, uh, But I've actually moved now to what is now my permanent role at the museum, which is as UK Biodiversity Training Manager. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably works if I start at the beginning right by way through all of that because <laughs> yeah, it's got sure. quite complicated. Sure. Um, so ID trainers, um, which is the shortened version because identification trainers for the future takes far too long to say. <laughs> um, ID trainers was a project thought up by my boss John Tweddle here in the AMC and one of my colleagues Lucy Robinson, um, and it essentially was a a response to the growing skills gap uh, which has been recognised for a number of years uh, within ecology in the UK and that is the loss of skills or the potential real risk of loss of skills in identification for some of the harder to identify species groups. Mm -hmm. So quite often the real small or obscure groups, um, we've been working with lichens, with uh, flies, uh, hymenoptera, corneoptera all those sorts of groups um, and sorry just
0: just to pause for a second when we're talking about loss of skills there are we talking about young ecologists trained in those specific taxonomic groups not coming through as much as in the past is that is that one of the main causes yeah,
1: that is one of the main causes um we've we've been able to recognize through various papers that have been written for oh, probably the best part of at least a decade Um, that we've been losing a lot of those skills. A lot of the experts uh, with the real in-depth knowledge on a lot of those species groups are, to put it bluntly, getting older. Mm -hmm. Um, And that puts us in an increasingly risky position uh, where we may lose some of that real expertise um, and have to re-find it. Some of the texts which support that knowledge are themselves quite old, quite difficult to access may well be out of print mm-hmm. um and may only be found you know you might be talking about uh, books which are published in the 1920s and trying to find copies of those is increasingly difficult right. as well as actually contacting and finding mm-hmm. the experts um and there's there's not really been much uh replacement in terms of young people coming through finding it accessible to actually get into some of these species groups there are people who are passionately interested yeah I mean Um, we both know
0: something (laughs) we
1: do yeah definitely Um, I'm I'm very very grateful that that I do Um, but it can be a very difficult thing to access Um, at the Natural History Museum here we're extremely lucky that we've got a lot of those experts here either as employed curators or as connections as scientific associates or people that we work with very closely Um, so we're in a bit of a unique position to really be able to access some of those experts and this seemed like a great opportunity through the Skills for the Future um, fund that HLF had uh, to try and connect the two up. Mm. The the really enthusiastic, passionate young natural historians with those genuine experts Mm -hmm. and try and get them to find a way of of sharing that expertise. Um, So we went into partnership with uh, the National Biodiversity Network Trust Mm -hmm. and the Field Studies Council and after a lot of discussion which was before I joined the museum, um, but developed the the ID Trainers project. Um, Essentially, it's the museum's response to that skills gap. Um, So, in terms of what we've been doing, the project's actually now coming to a close. Mm -hmm. Um, So, it's had its three years of its main delivery phase. And that phase has taken 15 trainees, five a year, and they've come to us for 12 months. Um, a traineeship started in March and ended at the end of February. And while they've been with us, they've been training in not only identification skills, but also in scientific communication. One of our big points for this project was not just to train 15 people, which is a laudable thing in its own right, yeah. but to actually train those 15 people to be able to communicate that knowledge effectively to other people, right, to be able yeah, to inspire engage yeah as many people as possible over the course, not just of the traineeship, but of their career as well. Yeah. Um, you can almost think of it as the pyramid scheme of selling ID skills if you want. You know, We train 15 people, but we train them to train others. Yeah. Um, over the course of however long their, their careers end up being, they can therefore hopefully inspire so many other people and find new and novel ways of teaching ID skills and and transferring those ID skills as well Mm -hmm. not just the books and journals that we've often ended up relying on Um, so yeah, so that's been the main core of the project Um, we've now finished the training part of it Um, the trainees are finishing off some of their own final projects at the moment which are new and hopefully different and inspiring and engaging ways of sharing some of those uh, skills that they've learnt uh, so we've had the first few of them published on our website already.
0: So, could you give an example of what uh, a project by mm. one of the trainees is?
1: So, some of the ones that we've uh, completed so far, uh, Mike in the first year did an excellent guide to vegetative identification of orchids. So, as opposed to everything which most well, certainly most field guides on orchid identification it relies on the flowers, but they can flower for such a short window.
0: Yeah.
1: What are the characteristics of the? Of the vegetative parts of the plant so we've got a really in-depth guide to how to do that out of it um, we've then had multi-access keys produced For um, example sally um again in the first year did a lovely one on um introducing british grasses and that's hosted on uh, Phil studies council tomorrow bi- speaking now, tomorrow's biodiversity uh, website Um, through a lovely platform that Rich Burkner over there um, designed and Uh developed. So using that to communicate, not only through um, the identification characteristics, but through beautiful line drawings and images of live specimens and images of our um, herbarium specimens in the museum as well, to give people multiple opportunities, different ways of looking at, at plants um we've got a few more coming up quite soon as well. uh so Nikki's just about to finish off one uh looking at british pug moths. So how to identify those small little moths that you always those get pug in your moths
0: just... that all look the same. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but one of the lovely things is obviously here we have an amazing collection of of lepidoptera so she's yeah. been able to go through that collection. Yeah. find the best and in some cases the worst examples as well of yeah. of, of a lot of those specimens, and take really detailed photographs, which is mm. then identified exactly which bit on that wing that you're supposed to be looking at. Yes. not just you know lovely descriptions, but also here it's this bit here. Uh, Actually, yeah. be able to point to it. So that's Sorry, Yeah, really they works. don't all look
0: the same. That's like, that's an unfair characterisation of bugs, yes. but they're What's very the difficult.
1: The differences are very tiny, and they yes. are very very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> what that's not going to do is the really difficult bit, which is the genitalia dissections. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly for most of them, for the visual characteristics on the wings, it should be a really really good guide. Good. Um, so.
0: I don't think anyone's it. mentioned genitalia dissections on the podcast yet. Oops. That's a good tick. Excellent. <laughs> thank, well, you. thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Given what we've been looking at with this project, it may come up again. I've warned you. Yeah. So, so yeah, some really exciting things still to come from the project. Yeah. The trainees have gone off to exciting new careers all over the country. Um, right. Yeah. I'd be yeah. interested
0: in hearing about that as well. Yeah, what they've yeah. gone on to do.
1: Yeah. They've 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 gone on to all sorts of things actually. Um, and. Even though um, our last group of trainees finished pretty recently, uh, they finished at the well, beginning of March, um, I think we've now got yeah, four out of five of that last group are on to their next thing already, mm-hmm. um, which in terms of you know recruitment after a training programme is amazingly good. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and out of the whole 15, that's 14 out of 15 actively working in natural history, UK biodiversity yeah. in some shape or other yeah. um, and all of that in paid employment as well um, which is phenomenally good, better than we could have hoped for certainly at this stage yeah. which is lovely and that, that again that ranges from people who come back to the museum and work here um, so we've got a couple of people over in curation uh, sort of still working with the same specimens they were working with and in the same teams they were helping out with during their uh, traineeship Um, Joe is uh, the wildlife gardens ecologist Mm -hmm. so he's outside um, most of the time in our wildlife garden Um, but then we've also got people who've gone off to conservation charities uh, RSPB, London Wildlife Trust um, Don Valley River Restoration Trust Earthwatch um, so they're scattered right across the UK Um, and then we've got uh, more government side of things we've got uh, Christina works for Natural England right um, so, yeah, people have gone off to really great things. Um incredibly proud of them. Um, I really do feel like yeah, Mother Hen sort of sitting here watching <laughs> the flock disappearing off and doing amazing things and just sort of getting to sit here and looking very proud at yeah. everything they're doing. It's, it's all down to their hard work. Um,
0: That's really great. Yeah. And just to give people a sense of the journey that these, these trainees have been on, mm. some of the ones who, you know, for example, on orchids or on grasses, mm. when they started the traineeship, where was there, you know, obviously they probably had some ecological knowledge, but where did they start in terms of a knowledge base on the, on the species or the tax that they ended up specialising in? Very variable. Okay.
1: Um, across, across three years, it's been really variable. What we were looking for, and it was a real challenge for recruiting actually the 15 trainees, wasn't necessarily their current standard of knowledge, but their passion and enthusiasm to want to learn. And that's mm. a really hard thing to assess. Um, we've had some people, uh, Katie, um, April, for example, who've come in with a real passion and a real good grounding in their subject matter, Katie and Beatles and April in Lykins, And they've come in with a, a genuine, this is what I want to study. And they've, obviously they've done brilliantly in, in the other areas that we've shown them as well, but they've stuck with it and their knowledge level has grown exponentially, mm. um, throughout the traineeship. Others have come in a lot broader, um, yep. and some have done specialist placements in one area and then gone off to then do their final projects in a different area and are studying something else and are quite generalist, um, but they've all, they've all done amazingly well in spite of that. Yeah.
0: And what sort of things, just to give people a favour, what sort of things were they doing on a day-to-day basis to, you know, to, to acquire these skills?
1: during the traineeship yeah during the traineeship okay. um so the traineeship was split up into four um phases mm-hmm. so phase 1 was a general sort of orientation um to not only this museum but other museum collections um around london and the wider uk biodiversity sector we had some people coming in with no degrees no science background um, right. degrees but in the arts and not in science. Yeah. Um, quite a few career changes coming to us from nursing and security work and, and all sorts of things. So we kind of had to give like a broad overview. Yeah. So the first month was lovely because I got to take them around all my favourite places. <laughs> <laughs> Look, isn't this amazing? <laughs> um, then phase two, which was uh, the longest phase, was five months long. And that was, they were balancing their their day-to-day between... Working for us in the AMC, so they might have been working on our identification service. Mm-hmm. They might have been helping out with some of our citizen science projects, or coming out with us to events and helping us run the AMC stand, or help us run bio blitzes, that sort of thing. Um, and then the rest of the time, they were on identification workshops. So right the way through the main survey season, um, they've done everything from lichens, bryophytes, uh, we've done flies beetles, uh, bees, ants, mosps, um, all the main groups that we wanted to focus on uh, throughout the traineeship. And they've done week-long workshops on each of them to give them a flavour and an insight into how to tackle that particular group. Mm-hmm. And each one of those has been run by senior curators or lead researchers in that particular field. So it's, it's been the genuine experts coming down and giving their time Uh, to our trainees uh, which has been fantastic because they've had real genuine international leading experts teaching them how to identify these things going through, holding their hand through some of the trickier bits and pieces and have then been fantastic mentors for for them Um, all of the trainees have had that all the way through their traineeship and beyond as well Um, they've been able to collect specimens have a go at identification if they need verification on it, they've got the wealth of the experience and knowledge of the of the museum behind them mm. uh, to help them and check and correct them and guide them, yeah. uh, which has been great. And they've definitely all taken advantage of that as well. Um, so, yeah, so that was phase two. Uh, phase three, they then picked their specialist subject um, and then spent three months predominantly working in that collection. So going off to a particular curator... Mm-hmm. and delving into that subject with a curator. Uh, quite often they were given a specific project or a specific task to do across that three-month period, um, so they really could focus on their main subject. Uh, amazing opportunity, because then they've, they haven't been placed here with us. They've been sitting with that group uh, right the way through the week, uh, spending all their time not just with their particular curation placement supervisor but surrounded by the whole team visiting researchers who might come in um, and they've all taken that opportunity to pick as many brains as possible and see as much of the collection and and work with specimens some of them it's been very hard to actually get to leave at the end of the day (laughs) (laughs) coming in at weekends and doing extra work and things just because they they have this access to this amazing place this amazing resource Um, yeah. yeah yeah and why wouldn't you take advantage of that yeah So, yeah, so they did that for three months. Um, And then phase four has really focused on the knowledge transfer side of it. So, developing their communication skills. Mm -hmm. They've had opportunities all the way through the year to do that. Um, But during phase four, they do um, the award in teaching and education with the Field Studies Council. Right. So, they come out with a preliminary teacher training qualification qualification at the end of it, which really helps. They've had training from our media teams in terms of how to communicate via TV and radio Mm -hmm. um, and print, Um, and lots of opportunities to tie those sorts of things out with us as well. Um, And we've taken as many opportunities to do that as we can. We've had trainees off speaking at conferences. We've had trainees writing articles and blogs, those sorts of things, right the way through, um, and helping us out at outreach events. They've done nature live talks for us here in the museum Mm -hmm. talking to our own audiences um and then um we were very very lucky actually midway through year two of the traineeship that we got approached by a um film company um and asked as the amc to help them out with a a documentary they were producing for bbc4 oh wow um which ended up being called what was it British back garden, life and death on your lawn. (laughs) Oh yeah, I think I have heard that. Yeah, yeah. One of the presenters is very well known. Mm -hmm. Terrifyingly, the other co-presenter is kind of me, which was uh, (laughs) honestly the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. (laughs) But amazingly, it gave us this incredible opportunity to take 10 out of 15 of our trainees, because it crossed over two year groups, out to do TV work. And actually see that side of it, which wasn't something we anticipated um at all. and it's just one of those That's things great. that kind of fell into our laps really. So yeah. from again from a communications, how to communicate in that environment perspective, it was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it did scare the daylights out of me. <laughs> <laughs> so how many episodes of that were there? It was just one episode. Oh, just one off episode. But it okay. was um filmed across a full year. Right. Um so there were four filming weeks of pretty much 24-7 filming for a week at a time with the trainees involved in like two days um, in each in each session Uh, yeah great fun
0: yeah (laughs) so i want to to set to set everything you've just described in context Mm -hmm. slightly um this is quite a big question let me try and refine it a little bit um and it's probably gonna sound like a bit of a silly question as well um you know the natural history museum is full of exhibits of non-living stuff and what you've just described is very much about taking people and helping them to identify the living world yeah. o- outside outside of this building and in, in some ways mostly outside of london as well mm-hmm. so what i suppose what is the connection a very basic level in your own words between the natural history museum and wildlife conservation both in the uk and globally why, why does the natural history museum see itself as having a role in in that and what link i suppose does it also have to the natural history museum's own history as an institution
1: so a nice small compact question then. Yeah, yeah yeah lovely yeah. lovely sp- yep. <laughs> sp-
0: specific and focused question <laughs> for you yeah. yeah
1: i'll do my best um <laughs> correct me if i start to go off on a tangent here um okay so the natural history museum um as a separate identity Um, institution from the British Museum where it originated
0: um,
1: has existed since
0: 1881
1: Uh Um, but our collections go back a lot longer than that Um, the actual origins of the Natural History Museum and its collections stem from um, Sir Hans Sloane's collections uh, which were sold to the government um, on his death as part of his will Um, and all of that collection created the British Museum Um, Subsequently, um, within around about a hundred years roughly, Mm. the natural history collections were starting to get in a poorer and poorer condition, uh, somewhat neglected and not kept in the best conditions. So the then uh, superintendent of natural history, uh, Richard Owen, uh, petitioned the government to separate the natural history collections, which is what created the museum Mm -hmm. um, originally. Um, and took the history collections out as its own thing so they could be looked after Mm. separately. So what that means is that we've got some very, very old artefacts within our collections and um, if anybody ever gets the opportunity to go into the uh, historic collections museum Grab it with both hands, because it is one of my favourite rooms on the planet. Oh, really? It has got some amazing stuff in it. Genuinely, jaw-droppingly incredible specimens. Do you want to give us a flavour of
0: some of the stuff that makes your jaw drop that's Um, in there?
1: So... The Historic Herbarium uh, is a room that I've been allowed in um, a good few times. The advantage of having trainees is you, c- you can open doors. You know? <laughs> can you show <laughs> my it's lovely doors, trainees yeah. this thing? And the people go, yes. And, so I'll be coming too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, that, that room's um, in the Darwin Centre, and it's a specially created room uh, to house um, Sloan's Herbarium collection. So that's... All, the majority of his herbarium material um, that he collected or was given to him as modern material mm. but also his own historic collection as well so there are you know, original copies of, of Ray in there with Hans Sloane's handwriting in from right. where he was using that as the reference catalogue to catalogue his own collection those sorts of things and then it traced tra- tra- back in time um, right into the depths of our understanding of where you know where herbarium collections came from and that that real depth that then everything else that we do particularly in terms of collections is stacked up on Mm. and actually understanding that that's the foundations of what we're doing and we've got this this ability to travel in time as a result and that is for me where collections can really provide that understanding for modern conservation and active conservation yeah we have got that time series of data, provable time series of data. Even if the the names on the herbarium sheets or pin specimens or whatever aren't currently correct, mm. you can still go back and you can re-identify and you can reclassify and correct. Um, but you can understand what material, what plants or invertebrates or whatever were in a particular place at a particular time. Mm. It allows us to then understand what is there now and to run through that whole time series is vital for so many lines of research. Mm -hmm. Most people who come into the museum don't realize the depth of what's here. What you see in the galleries is the tiniest tip of the iceberg on on the top of our collections. It's it's what we use to start conversations about natural history and start to inspire and get people to think about it. Mm -hmm. But it's far, far not the depth of our collections at all. We have about 18 million specimens in the museum. <laughs> <laughs> you physically couldn't put them all on display. It's hard enough to get around the galleries as it is yeah. with just those few bits and pieces which are out on I mean, Yeah, the it must display. be a
0: tiny percentage of this actually visible to the public. On, in Very the much so, yeah.
1: Um, I saw something today which um, referenced the fact that we have 8 million butterfly moth specimens wow. within that collection. Just of one species group. Yeah. And um, sat in their collections and we then have about 300 to 350 scientists working back of house in the museum studying all of those specimens and that's just here. That's not the researchers that are using our collections and the amateur naturalists who are using our collections mm-hmm. constantly to, for their own research. The reason they're doing that is, is because of the quality of the data which is sat with those specimens. Um, if you do see some of the older collections, again, I'm going to use herbarium as an example because it's a great example of it. We've got material from, say, the mid-1700s. They may have been re um, accessioned onto modern herbarium paper, but we've not lost any of the original record. We might have transcribed it, but we've also got the original handwriting, with the original data label that went with that particular specimen. Mm-hmm. We've kept all of that so it stays all together. Because we've got material from, say, the 1750s, 1850s, 1950s, 2000, 2010, we can use that to track what's changed over time. One right. project that my, my manager, um, John Tweddle, is working on at the moment comes from a citizen science project we ran a couple of years ago uh, called Orchid Observers might have come across it. I think I've definitely heard of it. I wanted yeah. to ask,
0: actually, whether there's a concrete mm-hmm. example of a, you know, a UK biodiversity conservation project that illustrates how the Natural History Museum can, yeah. you know, how it plays a role in conservation.
1: Yeah, Orchid Observers is, is, for me, the perfect example of how this should work. Right. We've got a fantastic time series um, of, of information for orchids. Yeah. They're beautiful plants. They press terribly. They look awful. <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: but, much better real but, in real in... Yes, in the field. <laughs> absolutely. They
1: look far better in, uh, in, uh, well, in, in life, yeah. um, but we have got this fantastic collection and a lot of that has got the place they're recorded, the exact date they recorded, even right back to a good couple of hundred years ago, and we've got material after material. Hmm. And then we can go out and we can collect new data. Now the Orchid Observers from the Citizen Science Project worked in two ways. It helped us to digitise that original collection. So part of it was just done through an online platform. People could log in and they could help us transcribe all of the data labels. Right. That takes time. Yeah. Natural historians are not best at handwriting sometimes, (laughs) Um, (laughs) to say the least. Some of it is an almost illegible scroll. Mm. But with multiple people looking at the same terrible handwriting, you can normally get an agreement on perhaps what the date that that specimen was collected. Yeah. Because certain orchid specimens flower for a relatively short window of time, you therefore know when they were flowering. Do that over 200 years, and then within the Orchid Observer's Project, we have people going out and photographing and sending us photographs of current Today's flowering orchids. dates. Yeah. Um, we could then look at whether or not flowering seasons had changed We can then map that with well-known environmental data for the UK, rainfall, temperatures across the seasons, see what's changed with that, with climate change, How's that affected the orchids, can we use that depth of our collection, that ability to time travel through when these things are flowering, and prove what's actually affected flowering season, and it turns out we can.
0: Oh, and were there any results from that
1: yeah project? so we've we're still working on the statistics from it because yeah. it's a very large project yeah. um producing an awful lot of data so we're still working on it but the initial indications um show that and now i'm going to have to do this in memory because this is not my project but it's to do with the climate in february on average which seems right. to be affecting. A, a good proportion of the 12 orchid species we particularly focused on in that mm. in that project um and consequently we can then start to research what the effects of, of that are for other things um or for impacts on pollinating species that sort of thing mm. um so yeah john is uh currently working on writing that up so uh, publication coming soon okay Not very <laughs>
0: exciting. i was out in a field in Herefordshire yesterday looking at the leaves of common spotted orchids starting mm. to come through which was really nice, particularly this time of year, their leaves are very, very, well, they're very spotted, they're very beautiful. Yes,
1: yeah, they are stunning species, but wonderful to be able to use that modern um, record and combine it with that time series and that depth of time series that we have here.
0: So that's a really powerful illustration. What you're saying is that you can take that huge wealth of historical data that the Natural History Museum is almost unique in having, combine that with the base of scientific knowledge and scientific experts who are here as Mm -hmm. part of this institution and then take that and apply that to current species conservation and the Natural History Museum is thereby playing a key role in, you know, uh, research on species conservation in the UK today and potentially also interventions to help those species as well. Is there an example, maybe not with the orchids, but is there an example of where the, the Natural History Museum's role has helped to then, you know, lead to lead to further action for a species, whether it's in the UK or internationally?
1: I'm going to have to go with yes, but <laughs> off the top of my head I'm really struggling to think of examples. We, we, that is the sort of work that we are doing constantly, Yeah. Um, looking at how we can work with conservation organisations, yeah. not just nationally but globally as well. Yeah. Um, some of that will be connected to monitoring um, incoming species across uh-huh. the UK, um, so Um, again this comes down to the ability to identify things if if you've got really good species experts and taxonomic experts you can recognize when new species are coming in yeah that's got potential implications not only in terms of recognizing the effects of say climate change but also potentially agricultural impacts or silvicultural impacts as well Mm. Um, so we can start to look at you know if we've got a potential new pest species coming in um, as well so there are examples of that kind of work going on in our collections teams and research teams right across the museum, and it's not just the UK as well. Obviously, there are um, global implications for a lot of that as well. We're not far from a, a national collection; it's we collect- are a global national collection are global as well, aren't we? Exactly. They? Yeah. yeah, and we're involved in a lot of projects right the way around the world. Some of them you might not expect mm-hmm. as well. Um, I was actually just at a talk this afternoon about the d 3 project. Uh, that we're coordinating, which is a project um, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, mm-hmm. um, looking at human uh, soil parasites, uh, so soil helmets and how they affect human populations in Africa and Asia, huh. um, and different ways of controlling um, the effects on humans uh, through understanding the parasitic worms which, mm-hmm. which may affect them, particularly in rural populations um in less developed parts of the world um so those those sorts of things as well so we can have uses uh globally for both conservation and things like human health and um, agriculture as well
0: i think this is one of the things that i'm really glad that we've touched on because as with so many organizations you know i had a had a good look through the natural history museum website and found stuff about um about work on deep sea trenches and work on Antarctic penguins and was, you know, surprised by the, the breadth of work that the Natural History Museum yeah. is involved in, which is <clears throat> excuse me much more than you might assume if you just came and visited the museum for a day and is obviously yeah. fantastic. But like you said earlier, that visit to the museum is then a, a gateway to starting that conversation with people about the, the whole range of work that the museum yeah. does
1: absolutely and that's one of the reasons why we've we've changed all of the exhibits in in hinsey hall in the main hall for the museum could it's you tell super, a bit more about that yeah um so i mean a lot of people will have heard about dippy going out on on tour yeah um and blue whale coming in Hope, the whale, hope right? yes that's yeah. right yeah um so obviously hope herself as a specimen is a great example of positive conservation mm. the increase in numbers in the blue whale um globally uh and then having that specimen there allows us to talk about that and allows us to start that kind of conversation. Mm. But each of the specimens in those wonder bays around the hall um, give us an opportunity for different conversation, ranging from deep time and exploration of space through the the section of meteorites that's there, which I just, as a single object, find fascinating, the fact that we have an object there that's four and a half billion years old, (laughs) and is stunningly beautiful. Yeah. But is the origin, you know, the, timed with the origins of, of the solar system. Yeah. It's fascinating. Right the way through to a case um, which is designed to show the diversity of insect life on Earth um, and a very cleverly designed display um, which allows us to talk about all of the different invertebrates, um, different body forms, different life histories, and just the amazing diversity of, of insects mm-hmm. on the planet. Um, yeah, so each each one allows us to look at our science in a very different way. Obviously there's also a great big dinosaur in there as well, <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be the same place without those. Um,
0: I wanted to go back to something you mentioned a moment ago, which is the, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about the, what digitisation is and the importance of it and what the, the kind of digitisation projects that the museum is undertaking of its collection
1: yeah so uh, we've set ourselves a lot of very ambitious targets to try and digitize our collections now doing that for 80 million specimens just saying 80 million specimens and trying to digitize them sounds like a lot of work yeah when you bear in mind that some of those specimens could be an entire dinosaur through to a microscope slide yeah and the scale and difficulty between the two of how to catalog those digitally means this is a very long and time-consuming project Um, but of course it offers so many opportunities London is not the easiest or cheapest place to get to yeah, for a lot of people. Yeah, um, Globally, of course, but also nationally as well. Um, a lot of people do come here, mm. but it takes effort yeah. for a lot of people to get here. The more we can digitise and digitise good quality, not just images of our specimens, but the data as well, mm. the more people can use our collections and therefore the more they can contribute towards... All aspects of science.
0: And when you say images, these are, correct me if I'm wrong, these are often 3D images of the specimen, aren't they, that people can access online?
1: Yeah, some can be. Um, Obviously that is itself a very time-consuming process to try and take 3D images of everything. Um, So for certain things, for example, um, I think we've digitised all, most of, uh, the British butterflies and moths. Right. They are flat. They are not as 3D because you don't need it (laughs) (laughs) but you can scan an an image a lot of uh, lepidoptera pretty quickly as a result so you can take good quality photographs Mm -hmm. and you can photograph the data labels and then they're stored as a digital collection part of that is security if something were to happen to the museum we've also got that digital collection and that record which is important Um, but also it means that people can access the collections off-site all the way around the world Some of the specimens which we have digitised from a 3D perspective can therefore be used in different ways. So, for example, um, if you came in through the Earth Gallery's entrance, you would have met Sophie the Stegosaurus. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Um, So she has been 3D scanned, in very high quality 3D scan. When she was first bought by the museum, uh, they scanned her in a lot of detail, um, which is brilliant. Um, as a digital record but also means that people can study her in different ways. So that 3D model has been put into software which allows us to understand how a stegosaurus moves, so to look at gait analysis um, and how a stegosaurus would actually have walked in a way that you can only infer through looking at the skeleton as a static object. Um, Equally that specimen that you saw there is the actual specimen, it's not a cast, it's not a model of the specimen, it's the real thing. Yeah. Um, that also, in a way, makes it difficult to study because you can't keep taking bits and pieces off an actual display if you want to study such an exciting specimen. Yeah. But you can now 3D print it. So, when she first came in, um, there were, I think, you know, I'm having to delve into the memory a little bit here because this is a couple of years ago, but yes, that's right, it was the research team in Argentina studying the plates along her back to see what they might have been used for from 3D printouts rather than from the actual specimen. Mm -hmm. We were able to just email them the file, they could 3D print So
0: they 3D printed them out on the other side of the world Yes, and then could
1: study the exact detail of everything on those plates, but from a nice, safe, 3D printed version of her, so we haven't got to worry about posting an incredibly valuable um, and very fragile specimen halfway across the world and back again um, which is fantastic. Mm. More locally, um, one thing that I'm going to be working on, um, along with colleagues here, um, both in the AMC and across the museum, is looking at how we can use digitised specimens as a better training resource. So, my new role now that we're coming out of ID trainers is looking at training going forward for the museum for right. UK biodiversity. Yeah. Um, and again, we've got the same issue that the museum's difficult to get to. Well, We'd love to have workshops on here every day of the week, but people yeah. can't necessarily get here for week-long courses, they put, put, pay to put themselves up in hotels, yeah. it's expensive. If we can create some form of online training platform at some point, and this is what I'm hoping to work towards over the next couple of years, we can then use those digital specimens to help people to study oh, and to understand train, and learn. Uh, train remotely. Yeah, mm. yeah, both for training and for just their own study and resource. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're looking, we've, we have a synoptic collection of um, British invertebrates and various other bits and pieces that we regularly get as inquiries um, housed just next door from where we're sitting now. And that's going to be one of our targets uh, to digitise, is to, to digitise that collection. So we have an online synoptic collection that people can come in and use as a, as a resource. Mm-hmm. So yeah, hopefully that will happen quite soon.
0: Cool. I wanted to also get a bit of a bit more of a flavor of what it's like working here day to day for you so uh, through a couple of questions um, first one being that um uh, a couple of times um, you very generously let a uh, focus on nature come and have a couple of meetings here and last time we were here you took us through and showed us some of the some of the specimens um so you've already mentioned the herbarium but I wanted to ask are there any are any particular groups of specimens or any single individual specimen among the 80 million so you know easy to narrow it down <laughs> um, that you know you've got a particular fondness for or uh, interest in Ooh. or that are particularly striking or that you often show to people like us when we came and visited?
1: Yeah so I think each of us in the AMC have kind of got our favourite little trail through the collection <laughs> that we like to take out for kind of show and tell because they're the, the nice ones. Um, One of my favourite things actually in the Synoptic collection is our butterfly moth collection. Mm. Not only do I have a little bit of a soft spot for uh, bat food, sorry, moths. (laughs) um, (laughs) uh, It's itself a beautiful example of a Lepidoptera collection and how useful that can be. Um, The bulk of our butterfly moth collection within the Synoptic is one person's collection. Um, that was given to the museum. And not only have you got male and female, and a couple of variants normally for each, almost every specimen, mm-hmm. which would come, species which would come into the UK with the odd missing rarity and vagrant, you've also got the pupil case and the caterpillar, and in some cases the egg as well. So uh, it'll be yeah, like a, a tiny girl. little bit of stick with a little egg stuck in there. Yeah. And having that collection um i've rarely seen a collection so good particularly in terms of the caterpillars they are not easy things to to do at all yeah. and they're beautifully done and it's always my favorite is my kind of go-to i can kind of open almost any drawer out of that collection and there's there's something phenomenal in there um, which might be something which is quite a common species but to know that you've got that complete record of its life cycle, I think it's, for me, that's one of my favourite bits anyway.
0: Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, you showed us a death's head hawk moth, with yes, one of them? Yes, yes, so was...
1: I, I took out the shiny case for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we'll start it. It's got death's head, privet hawk moth, and convolvulus, I think, in, in the yeah. same yeah. drawer, yeah. isn't it? So privet was in there, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That so was it's, particularly amazing. It's a, yeah, it's a very nice drawer to bring out when you're doing a bit of show-and-tell around the collection. Yeah.
0: <laughs> One of the most striking things, actually, um, maybe you could say a little bit about this, was the technology that's used to used to store the specimens.
1: Oh, yeah. So, um, I mean, the part of the building we're sat in at the moment is not the beautiful Waterhouse building, the 1881 yeah. building. Uh, we're sat in the Darwin Centre, which is the modern steel glass uh, part of the museum. Um, the centre itself here opened in 2009, um, when the building was first opened. Mm. Um, and it was designed specifically to look after our life history, that's why, our life sciences collections. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason for that is a building built in 1881 is not the perfect environmental conditions to keep specimens in. And we can do a lot better uh, for our collections. Uh, damp, pests, insects, rodents, fungi pests, uh, all big concerns for us. Uh, we're in the middle of London, there's a lot of food resource available. Uh, we're also in a very public museum with all the potential pest uh, implications that brings. We have a cafe right above our heads mm-hmm. while we're yeah. sat here. Um, so pest control is a, is a big issue for us to protect our collections. The building of the Darwin Centre and that collection space that you went into was a really big part of making sure we can control... Um, and look after our collections not just for now but hopefully for you know for the future um, without using a lot of the noxious chemicals which we used in the past right um, so the build the, the room that you went into is pretty heavily environmentally controlled it's kept at low humidity and low temperature uh, because it retards the ability of fungal pests and insect pests to, to grow uh, we have to be really careful, obviously, as well, about what we take in there. So there's no food and drink um, and no outdoor coats or bags. Or like that, higher risk uh, pest uh, carriers. Yeah. Um, and then we also have to think about space as well. We only have so much space we cannot expand the, the footprint of the natural history museum anymore mm. um, because there's a lot of london in the way <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. you're pretty surrounded <laughs> yes and the science
1: museum might object if we start yeah. heading in the other direction <laughs> um so we've got to be really conscious about about space so we've got compressor units which don't compress the specimen um but a mobile um uh, storage cabinets sort of on runners yeah that's right yeah so you can compress a whole suite of units together without having corridors in between and then just open up to create a corridor yeah so you can just put more cabinets in to the same space um the room that you went into um with when you last came in here yeah um imagine that going up for eight floors (laughs) right (laughs) and that's a fair proportion of the dry store collection for life sciences right not everything we haven't been able to get everything in there just yet, yeah, but and even at this scale we've obviously we, we have room for expansion of our collections because we want to keep that time series going. We don't want to stop, we have to keep collecting to keep the value of our collections going, mm. if that makes sense. We need modern examples so that in the future people still have that time series, yeah, so we need expansion space, um, which is at a premium. Right. So, the, so,
0: will some of that maybe happen off-site? A are, all are, are eighty have, million on-site no, at this present time. No,
1: we have got off-site storage right. areas. Um, obviously, people will probably know about the whole system museum over at Tring. Mm-hmm. Um, so that houses our bird collections. So almost all of the um, taxidermy preparations, and certainly all of the the skin preparations. Then it's also got an amazing egg collection and what I find most fascinating in their uh, bird nest collection oh, wow. which is tucked away in the basement and it's it's a fantastic collection of not just a specimen and object but a record of behavior and in some cases behavior yeah. that will never be seen on this planet again because the species have gone extinct yeah um, so that's a fantastic collection and then we have off-site storage areas as well for uh, a lot of the times I think our larger um, taxidermy things Okay. There's only so many rhinos you can fit in <laughs> before you need some other kind of kind of arrangement. That, that may
0: be the title of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great episode title, I think. There's only so many rhinos you can fit. <laughs> I saw this beautiful phrase on the website as well, which was bird spirits, which obviously mm-hmm. means birds that are embalmed in, in liquid, yes. but sounded as if... You know, you're kind of keeping specimens of birds' souls, which sounded very beautiful. <laughs> well, that
1: does, doesn't it? Right, <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah well, the other half of the Darwin Centre, the other like, wing of the Darwin Centre, is our spirit collection. Yeah. Which, when you put it like that, does sound like we're collecting <laughs> souls a little bit. Oh gosh, I'm never going to be able to look at it the same way again. Um, yeah, so that's our, that's our spirit collection, which... Yeah ranges from large tanks, and if anyone's been on the spirit collection tour, they have seen, uh, obviously, the uh, rather large uh, giant octopus specimen oh, wow. down there. Um, and, yeah, all the way through to, you know, uh, spirit collections for far smaller objects. Again, multiple floors of, of cabinets in, in spirit collection as well.
0: So just to very quickly pick up on that, then, there are tours that give people mm-hmm. the chance to see some of these kind of behind-the-scenes yes. bits
1: of yes. the museum. Yeah, and um, there are tours of the Spirit Collection which happen, I think, every afternoon, or most right, afternoons. Okay. So, yeah. so, yeah, they're um, no longer free, but they're not, you know, vastly expensive because we want people to be able to access our collections, yeah. um, and it's a great opportunity to get that real behind-the-scenes flavour, yeah. definitely. And the other thing as well, which, which is also free, is the, um, the Nature Live Talks that we do on most Fridays and Saturdays. Um, because that's one of our scientists coming out, and they'll bring out their favourite specimens from the collection and things, and you get to have that one-to-one conversation almost with with one of our scientists and see what what their passion is as well. Mm. So they're definitely worth doing.
0: Cool. What's it like? Uh, what's it like working with the people here? What's the community like? How many people are actually employed or work here at the museum every day? And what's it like working with you know such a range of, I guess, world-leading experts on various things?
1: Yeah. Um, do you know what, it's inspiring. Yeah. I absolutely love it. Again, one of yeah, the advantages of the ID Trainers project has been um, the fact that it's given me that opportunity and that reason to go off and speak to so many people, right the way across the museum. Mm. That's not just our life science scientists, but um, we've tried to bring in some of our earth scientists colleagues as well, um, and a lot of work with our public engagement team. Uh, who've offered placements and training to our trainees um so i've yeah, been at liberty really to go off and speak to her if i want to and sometimes you, you realize you're having lovely conversations whether or not it's through work or at a christmas party or just in the common room and suddenly you're having these amazing conversations about people's research or work or what they're interested in and yeah i've found so many people here who are fascinating and and fascinated by what they do and I find it just inspiring, mm-hmm. um, absolutely day to day.
0: Could you say a little bit more about what it is you've been doing since you started in your new role in June last year, if yeah. I remember that correctly?
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, in June last year I transferred over to a new role of UK Biodiversity Training Manager. Mm-hmm. So um, within the Angela Marmont Centre for UK Biodiversity, we've got three main streams of work. One of them is our identification and advisory service, mm-hmm. um, which is both a public and a commercial service, which uh, people can come in and show us things that they found. For example, a member of the public can literally come up and ring the doorbell here and go, I found this, what is it? <laughs> and we'll try to help them find an answer to it. Yeah. Um, through to amateur who want to come in here and do their own study might not have their own microscope, they can come in and use ours. Right. Um, so it's that kind of level of support we do that uh-huh. there. Um, our citizen science projects, uh, mm-hmm. which is run by my colleague Lucy, um, so they're working on a whole series of different citizen science projects so people can get involved and add to our research. Um, and we're currently also researching what effect that has on people. So we've got a new project called Learn citizen, uh which is about understanding the learning that our citizen scientists... Gain and what they get from partaking in citizen science, particularly young people, which is really interesting. Um, People have been doing citizen science for years, um, but no one's really studied to see what the citizen scientists get out of it. um, Which hopefully the answer is going to be quite a lot.
0: It'll be a whole range of things that we thought from the from the knowledge to um, you know relationships with other people to mental well being benefits Absolutely. from being outside. Yeah,
1: we certainly hope so. Yeah. Um so we're gonna be studying that over the next few years mm. um and trying to understand the, the wider benefits of citizen science, not just the research benefits of yeah. that kind of being able to crowdsource data. And then there's MyStream, mm. which is about training mm-hmm. which um, essentially is the legacy of the ID trainers project. A lot of these grant funded projects they run for three years, for example this one and then they stop. And then nothing happens. And they were wonderful at the time. But all of that just goes away. And it just stops. And we were very conscious that we still have that role to play. In being able to support um, identification training um, in the UK. Um, through the AMC. And we want to find out how we can do that best. So I started off by talking to various groups about how we can best support them through training. So mm-hmm. that's included AFON, mm-hmm. we have a bit of a chat. Yeah. Um, National Biodiversity Network, those, those sorts of people, um, and various amateur natural history groups who come in. Um, no one, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, able to escape without <laughs> telling me how we can help them more, help them to understand and love um, our natural history better. Um, so I'm currently writing a new strategy for the museum. Uh, looking at what we do over the next five years to help develop that program. I'm really conscious as well uh, that we don't just train the same old, same old. One of the things that I think natural History Training needs to work on is the diversity of people coming into this sector. It's something we started with ID trainers and looking at how we can increase the diversity of people applying to that sort of role. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm keen that we create a program which is accessible to as many people from as many different walks of life as possible. And that's why I'm so keen on things like online training so that people don't physically have to come in here. They can access us from wherever they are and Mm. whatever their lifestyle um, requires them uh, to be able to access how they can interact with us um, and how we can capitalise on their interests and give them opportunities to learn more. Um, So, yeah, so I'm writing the strategy at the moment for some of the things that we might explore over the next five years. Some of them are going to be starting pretty quickly. We've got a great program of ID training workshops that we develop for ID trainers. Oh, great. It would be ridiculous to throw those in the bin. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Our curators put so much effort and time into developing those programs um, that hopefully we'll be able to keep running um, several of those um, over the next few years. And hopefully from that develop a program which will help people develop more and more skills in natural history either for interest or for careers yeah. going forward as well. So that's, that's what I'm really working on there.
0: Fantastic. Um, and uh, what, um, I suppose what advice would you have for young people who might be in the conservation sector or thinking of getting into the conservation sector and want to specialise in identification, ecology kind of skills?
1: I'd say the first point is keep that enthusiasm. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's very easy, especially when you're starting out in that career, to get a bit disheartened. Mm. Um, Sometimes it takes a little bit of time, but there are so many fascinating and amazing things um, to learn um, that never get disheartened by it. Um, Get in touch with people, talk to them. Even, you know, one thing that I've learned, particularly through working here, I mean, coming here, in here is a new, even though I've been working in natural history for a long time, volunteering in natural history for a long time, yeah. actually going up and talking to international experts was a bit scary, to be honest with you, to start with, until you realise that they're lovely people who are passionate and love their subject matter an awful lot and want to share that knowledge with so many people as well. Yeah. And if you can... Connect with people. Go to the conferences. Go to the workshops. Um, go out and meet people. Talk to people. Um, you'll find people who are more than willing to show you what they know and, and guide you as well. So it's yeah, it's about finding that passion and finding other people to support mm. you in it. I think which which really makes a difference.
0: And that's great that there's you know as fantastic as the three years of the. Identification training was and being able to train those fifteen young people. It's great that there's something more long term mm. that that will hopefully start to address in a more systemic way what we spoke about almost at the beginning, which is that that lack of people coming through into this, these specialised areas that we really need for for the future in ways that you described over, you know very well.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's that's what we what we were very very keen on is that we didn't just stop. We've yeah. we've really got some fantastic momentum going on um, through the ID trainers project. We really want to continue that. We're just working out the best way to do that at mm-hmm. the moment. So hopefully, lots of exciting things to come very shortly.
0: Cool. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else that I wanted to ask about. Oh, um, is the is the wildlife garden here a particularly kind of useful resource? Could you say a little bit more about that? Because obviously, that's a that's a, um, you know, you've got live wildlife there, I suppose.
1: Yes, yeah, I mean, in, in a way that is our, our one live exhibit um, for for the museum. Um, so yeah, we've, we've made use of the wildlife garden throughout the ID Trainers project. Um, it's great having that resource right there on the doorstep. Um, and it's something we're hoping to grow and expand um, over the next few years as well and actually yeah. broaden that garden out across... The wider grounds of the museum um hopefully over the over the next few years too it's, yeah. it's fantastic to have it there um yeah and hopefully we can do more and more with it as well
0: yeah cool i think that's everything that i wanted to ask about there is there anything that you wanted to cover or say that i haven't brought up
1: um no i don't think so actually i think we've we've talked about hopefully, quite a lot that's of interest (laughs) to people who might listen. Um, Yeah, I mean, the only thing to add in is that if people do want to come in Mm. and use the centre's facilities, then um, you can just look under the Take part section of the museum's website, and that will show you how to get in touch with us, um, whether or not that's to get us to help you with some of your identification, or to come in and use the centre's facilities, because it's here to help yeah. Natural historians who are yeah. enthusiastic and passionate.
0: So, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't want you to be overwhelmed by by um, requests. And I'm, sure, I'm sure you probably won't be. But um, you know, for, as an example of focus on nature, we've come and had our committee meetings here, just in this meeting yeah. space that we're sitting in right now, yeah. a couple of times, which has been fantastically useful mm-hmm. because it's uh, when we're spread across the country and we don't have an office, we all work online. It's been fantastic to have a physical yeah. space to come and meet and be able to have those conversations in person so it's a fantastic resource for conservationists and ecologists to to be able to draw on and it's been great that you've you and the centre have been able to be so generous in in letting us come and do that on that couple of occasions because it's been a real benefit to the organisation
1: great well I'm really pleased because that's exactly what the centre's here to do to help Mm. support organisations like that um, as as much as we can and as much as the facilities here allow us to do so yeah really pleased that's been useful
0: Cool. Okay. I think that's everything. Thanks, Steph. That was so interesting. It was really, really good. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation, and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org, on Twitter at wildvoicesproj, or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.